This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode could contain profanity. It's up to me, I guess. Your Saturday could contain a GIST newsletter. To sign up for it, our once-a-week newsletter, go to slate.com slash GIST news. It's Tuesday, July 9th, 2019. From Slate, it's the GIST. I'm Mike Pesca. We are in this country in a moment of rethinking punishment. Some of us are. The good ones. You do the crime, you do the time, but reliance on rhyme is less than fine. So sometimes, for me, this question, these questions come up when I see stories of prosecutors overcharging for somewhat petty crimes. We, in fact, here in New York and Queens have a DA race where the socialist candidate, the AOC-endorsed candidate, who was winning and is now behind by last I looked 13 votes, has vowed to not prosecute. Are you ready? Sex work, low-level marijuana offenses, airport taxis, turnstile jumping, trespassing, disorderly conduct, loitering, drug possession, and welfare fraud. Welfare fraud! Paging the queen! Game on! But every once in a while, you hear a possible jail term for an offense that is just so outsized to the offense itself that it doesn't seem to even apply to this moment of let's be more lenient, let's be more smart, let's think about when criminals age out, let's think about over-incarceration. just seems like Vlad the Impaler was writing the laws. Take this incident. Authorities are looking for the woman who opened a carton of Bluebell at an East Texas Walmart, licked the top, then put it back on the shelf. Apparently, she thought it was hilarious, but police aren't laughing. They say her freezer, the freezer felony could land her in jail for up to 20 years for tampering. 20 years for licking the lid of an ice cream container. Was this part of the cooties crackdown of 08? The three licks in your out system? 20 years. There, there has got to be no law in the books that specifically addresses ice cream leakage. So I suppose they've used maybe a sort of Tylenol-based tampering charge to go for 20 years or at least threaten it. Now, the reason that this is on the news has nothing to do with how big the sentence is. It's because it's a weird crime. That's a category we like. We all make the jokes. The CNN anchor tries to make all the jokes. The tainted tub was found before anyone bought it, so. So if you kids thought this was the next viral sensation, you Licking. could get 20 years. I know, that's incredible. Why? She just. But come on, it's what it actually is goes beyond incredible to unfathomable. Now, We've all watched the news. There are acceptable things an anchor can say and stay on the side of the audience. And things like licking ice cream, oh no, that's not safe. That Those are sort of those things. But at this point, you can't say 20 years is too much for licking ice cream. But I think you should be able to. Maybe you could even say, Lori Laughlin, 40 years for bribing your daughter's way into college? It seems a little excessive. And then once we say that, once we acknowledge that, we could say something like, huh, he shoplifted a laptop for $3,000 and is now going away for seven years in jail? That seems too much. Yes, yes, you and I both agree that licking the ice cream shouldn't be almost three times for shoplifting the laptop, but it's all too much. It's all just too much. We can agree on that. And also, 
On the other side of the ledger, I think maybe we can agree, not the voters of Queens apparently, but some of us can agree that maybe some welfare cheating should be punished by, I don't know, work release, couple days in the slammer, in the who's gal. Maybe, just saying, just saying. I'm not 100% punitive, but I'm also not 100% lenient. Justice, just justice. That's my platform. On the show today, I spiel about the passing of Ross Perot. The Lord looked on to Ross Perot in his 89th year and said, all right, let me stop you there. And Ross Perot said unto him, let me finish. I could go on all day, which is why I have the spiel. But I do, in the spiel, get into Perot's legitimate legacy, not just the caricature that attached itself to Ross Perot, mostly because it was apt, extremely apt. But first, an amazing story of a man who survived Auschwitz, which is amazing enough, but even more shocking is why he was there. He volunteered to go as a member of the Polish resistance to tell the world of the death camp's horrors. And it worked, except it didn't. Jack Fairweather with the story of the volunteer, one man, an underground army, and the secret mission to destroy Auschwitz. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Witold Pilecki is a Polish, was a Polish, nationalist, army officer, patriot, hero. In fact, he should be one of the greatest heroes of Poland. He did, I would say almost the unthinkable, but the unthinkable, even though I just read a 400-page book about what he did. Witold Pilecki purposefully got interred in the Auschwitz death camp, didn't know it was a death camp then, and he lived long enough I think he was in there for over 900 days to get his story out so that the world would know. In one way, it worked. The story got out. But in another horrible but also familiar way, it didn't work because the world didn't care. The story, though, is fascinating. It is called The Volunteer, One Man, An Underground Army, and the Secret Mission to Destroy Auschwitz. Jack Fairweather is the author. Jack, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me, Mike. How'd you find out about the existence of Pilecki? I was um, been covering wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and was sitting with a with a fellow war reporter friend, and he just come back from a a job covering a memorial at Auschwitz concentration camp, and he'd seen a, a small exhibit talking about resistance in Auschwitz, and that was like a complete bolt from the right. from the blue for me. Hang on a minute, there was resistance in Auschwitz. How is that even possible? It went against everything I'd ever thought about the camp, and um, that's how I came across Vitor Pilecki's name. The second source of intrigue was the fact that nothing was known about him. This guy who went to the camp, raised an underground army, reported on the Holocaust, and yet silence. And so I felt compelled to tell the story. When we think of Auschwitz, 
most of its notoriety was from being a death camp. And there was no resistance among Birkenau and where their crematoriums were. They were just killing. But there was a portion of the camp that was a war crime and that was a horror, which is where they housed uh, some of the Soviets and, and the Polish nationals, where the aim was to be a work camp where they worked uh, prisoners to death. And that's where Pilecki was. And it was from there that a resistance, I didn't think it was possible, but that's where his resistance took route. That's that's exactly right. He arrived in the camp at its inception when it was a camp for Polish political prisoners, Catholics and Jews, anyone from Poland who the Nazis wanted to get out of the way and eliminate. Pilecki then witnessed these steps by which the Nazis arrived at the final solution in, the, in Auschwitz, and that involved some grim experiments, the first gas chamber using Zyklon B uh, pesticides to kill prisoners. And then eventually he learned that a new camp, Birkenau, was, was built nearby. And he faced this remarkable challenge of how do I work out what's happening in this other camp in a secret location uh, and then share that story with the world? Okay. The, the Germans invade. Poland tries to respond. When we say that does not go well, they're immediately decimated. And Pilecki joins the resistance. That, that's right. The, the war quickly turns into an occupation. And, you know, Pilecki is one of the first with a, few, a small band of other resistors to start to think about how do we fight back against the Nazis? What's that going to look like? You know, how do, how do we respond? How does the plan to get him interred into Auschwitz, how does that take hold? So a new ca- this new camp opens up in, in June 1940. So nine or 10 months into the occupation. And People are getting sent there. Hundreds of people are getting sent there, but no one really knows what's happening. There's a few rumors that it's particularly brutal and harsh place. So the underground, you know, wants to find out um, because one of their main ways of resistance in these early days is to chronicle Nazi crimes to tell the Allies. So Pilecki's mission is to get into the camp and start sen- sending those reports. Now, it wasn't the case that it was a crowded room and they said, who wants to volunteer for Auschwitz? Um, Pilecki had had a big disagreement with his fellow commanders, some of whom wanted to take the underground in a more sort of nationalist, sort of ethnic-centered, Christian-Polish direction. And Pilecki disagreed vehemently with that and had made a stand. And in actual fact, it's one of the sort of the ironies of his mission to Auschwitz is that it was partly to get him out of the way, get him sent, you know, get him out of Warsaw, you know, but his commanders suggested his name. Well, he went to Auschwitz for the reason that a lot of people went to Auschwitz, which was he wasn't sufficiently ethno-nationalist enough. He wasn't sufficiently anti-Semitic. That was one of them. He wanted the entire resistance to be for all the Poles and not to not to be a pro-Catholic, militaristic, anti-Semitic movement. Exactly. He, um, he was a centrist and someone who really understood that to defeat the Nazis to break free of the Nazi thinking about different ethnic groups. Yeah. They needed to come together. That was the strength of the resistance that he founded in Warsaw and then tried to recreate in Auschwitz. So do, do we know, I mean, I read the whole book, but one question I had is, do we have any sense of how long he thought it would be, how tough he thought it would be, what the likelihood of death would be, how bad the horrors around him would be? What did he think going in? Do we know? So when the Germans made made roundups in Warsaw, they would shoot people here and there. Maybe there would be a some guy would escape and they'd just pluck out 10 people and shoot them. I mean, when the Germans came banging on his the apartment door where he was staying, he had no idea 
you know, exactly what was going to happen to him. And it's really a moment of extraordinary courage that he sat in that room waiting to get arrested. In some ways, that's it's the moment around which some of the book pivots, because I think it's that first act of bravery, which reveals so much of Pilecki's motivations and gives you a sense of just how he was able to take that spirit of resistance into Auschwitz. Let's talk about a couple of the escapes. Was I wasn't aware that anyone escaped from Auschwitz. How many did and what were some of the bolder ways that they did it? I, I'm so pleased you touched on that theme because for me, that's that was one of the most shocking and amazing elements of Pletsky's story that there was this ingenuity and creativity and resourcefulness. I mean, they, he was thinking around the clock how to screw up the Nazis' operations in right. Auschwitz, and he was remarkably good at it. By and large, he tried to avoid escapes because when the prisoner escaped, all the prisoners were made, were punished um, as as a result. Um, but it happened that as the when the Holocaust began in the camp two years in, he recognized that this was something that just, you know, whatever the risk, they needed to get, right. get a guy. So let me just interrupt you. Less listeners think this is escape for escape's sake. Escape was tactical. Escape was to get the word out what was going on in Auschwitz because he knew that the cost would be high. First of all, that the escape probably wouldn't happen and that the other prisoners remaining would be subject to uh, collective punishment. Exactly. I think uh, there was around about 800 escapes from Auschwitz during, all, you know, all five years of its uh, existence and only a hundred were successful, of which about 14 of those were arranged by Paletsky. So he was including his own. So it was an incredibly fraught and, and dangerous affair and could lead, of course, if the messenger was captured to them all being yeah. exposed. So Paletsky arranged an escape in the summer of 42, which is truly one of the most exquisite moments of resistance in the camp. Uh, these four men stole SS uniforms from a warehouse, walked over to the camp garage where uh, Hus, the commandant's car, was being tuned up, sort of ordered uh, ordered the mechanics away in their guise as SS men, and then drove straight out of the camp. Gave uh, a hell Hitler, and, and they were on their way. On their way, yeah. So yeah. Uh, And and they made it. So, um, you know, one of Pletsky's, Pletsky's courier traveled all the way to Warsaw and delivered that all important news. So I have two questions, overarching questions. One is, I don't take it that he is a great hero of Poland, not that they're ashamed of him, but he hasn't been elevated to the status of a uh, mythical figure and probably should be. Why? Because it didn't work in the end? Because for all his bravery and heroism, this, the camp stood still? That's, that's a great question. A part of the reason why Pilecki's story is not known is because after the war, he went back to fight against the communists and they, he was betrayed by some of his fellow resistors, captured, put on a show trial, and executed. And then all trace of his wartime record was hidden away in the vaults, the communist vaults. And it was only in the mid-90s that the family themselves discovered the nature of Pilecki's mission when those, when those archives were, were opened up. So in Poland, there's been a slow rediscovery of his story, one which with the, the rise of the current right-wing government has been lent extra momentum because they see in his story uh, of a man wronged by history uh, a narrative that connects with their own yeah. their own narrative if this were made into 
a movie or let's call it a Netflix miniseries. Here's the problem that I think it would have. There are so many interesting, fascinating things and you will have a truly heroic person at the center. But usually the way that narrative works is we say it's a, a life and death struggle. But this isn't really a life and death struggle. This is a death and death and death and death and death and death and life struggle. There's so much death in there. There's a just a hopelessness to it. And I do wonder if... You give him the, you know, hero's story that he wants to have Would just the misery and the death get in the way of that in some way, if you were to turn it into a narrative tale. Well, I, I know what you mean, because I, you know, grew up with uh, learning about the Holocaust right. and never felt able to get my head around it or engage with it. And, I yeah. think and even the most well-known examples of literature about the Holocaust, fiction or nonfiction, always have those grace notes of Anne Frank believing that people are good. There's nothing like that here. There's just sorrow and misery. There is, but there is one other factor, which is that Paletsky, unlike a million other people who came to the camp, was there by choice. Yeah, He chose to go there. He chose to build an underground. He chose to resist the Nazis at the absolute epicenter of their evil and i think for me it offers you know such a startling perspective on the camp and what human beings are capable of despite the death around them despite that incredible pressure to you know to cease to exist that the nazis perfected in auschwitz paletsky didn't you know he kept he kept it going and i think some of the most amazing scenes in the book is when you see him sharing his mission with others and you see that hope spread around them and i think you know for me understanding that hope is possible in you know this darkest of hours i think is something that you know we can all look to in our own lives you know no matter how much we are struggling you know there is you know you've got to keep it together, not just for yourself, but for, the, for those around you. And yeah. I, I was touched by Paletsky's story. I mean, when he went to the camp, I, you know, we were the same age. We had two kids each. And I just, you know, I felt challenged to learn about how he could, how he could resist and what that could teach me. There's that really touching scene at the end of the book where he would come and watch his son uh, on like a routine Boy Scout trip where he'd come to Warsaw, but never interact with his son. Did his son have any interaction with him, you know, after he died? Because there's a question mark as to when his son even died and his daughter died. What did they think well, of their father years later? Well, amazingly, um, both his kids are alive. Really? And oh, this is not a question mark. It's a dash. It's a it's a big exclamation mark because wow. um, I you know they were the Andre Paletsky was the first person that I went to see upon touching down in Warsaw and uh, I was of course quite nervous about meeting him he was in his mid 80s at the time and you know he hadn't known his known his father and you know had been told he was an enemy of the state for 50 years and um, you know I was nervous about alighting on his story and telling it of course Andre was incredibly receptive to uh, everything he was delightful engaged although he did warn me at the beginning I you know I'm not sure what you'll find or where you should start looking. And so I remember sort of <laughs> looking him in the eye and saying, I'm going to start looking with you. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, when so little is known about Paletsky's thinking, you know, every little memory he might have of their childhood, you know, gives us some sort of insight into Paletsky's motivations. You know, the big question, of course, that I needed to answer was, how do you resist in Auschwitz? 
And, uh, you know, Andre, over the course of many interviews, um, helped me. In fact, he, um, I recreated the escape, uh, Pletsky's escape across, um, Poland. So I left the camp at the same time as he did and trudged along the Vistula and crossed it at dawn. And Andre. Did you sleep in barns along the way? In some forests. You and, did. You know, it's incredible how many of the, the places still stand. And along the way, you know, you would meet families who had sheltered Pletsky and they would say, you know, the kids now and also in the 80s would, you know, sometimes have memories. Is, is the son resentful that the government he lived under for, I guess, the majority of his life lied about his father, killed his father, ruined his legacy, lied about it, hurt the family name? Uh, Andre has reached a sort of peace with that, although his his cousin, who was actually in the room when Paletsky volunteered for the mission as a three year old boy and had had memories of it, I remember asking him, "So, you know, what was what was it like under communism?" And he just said, "It was shit." <laughs> <laughs> so that seems with a suitable vehemence that I can't quite capture, but that sort of summed up, I think, what a lot of the families of patriots um, like Paletsky's went through. I mean, they were ostracized and denied jobs and just lived sort of half-lives and, you know, lives really nurturing the the memories of their parents, many of whom were then, you know, interned or killed by the communists. Yeah. The Volunteer, One Man, an Underground Army, and the Secret Mission to Destroy Auschwitz by Jack Fairweather. It is an amazing story about a person that you didn't know existed, and then after you read it, you can't quite believe he's he would have been all but lost to history were it not for Jack Fairweather and people like him. Thanks so much, Jack. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. Ross Perot has died. Here's the thing to remember about Ross Perot. The world we live in now is fundamentally shaped by Ross Perot. If Perot doesn't run in 1992, it's quite possible that the election's outcome is different. I don't know if you'd say it's likely that we'd have a different result because Perot siphon votes off from both Bill Clinton and George H.W. Bush. Other factors are that Bush was unpopular, Clinton was charismatic, and Perot was running on mostly protectionist and anti-tax grounds, which appeals more to Republicans than Democrats did even then. Also, I'd like to cite the fact that polls at the time did reveal he had more support among Republicans than Democrats. All that said, maybe the outcome of the election isn't any different, but he got 19% of the final vote. And just based on that, we can't be sure, we can't even be reasonably confident that Perot didn't swing the election to Clinton. In fact, notable Bush advisor Mary Matlin told the 538 podcast that's exactly what he did. Unequivocally, to my grave, Ross Perot cost George H.W. Bush's re-election in 1992. So, to game this out, Perot affects the election, George H.W. Bush wins his second term. So, when that happens, I say it's likely that George H.W. Bush regains a lot of his lost popularity. The economy was already moving back into recovery. So, then in 1996, when that election comes around, we'd have had 16 straight years of Republicans in the White House. We'd be looking for a change. That's when you can imagine Clinton or Al Gore making a strong run. And if they win in 96, the economy's still going good. They probably win in 2000. I'm not going to say there are no 9-11 attacks, but it's pretty clear that there's no Iraq war if Clinton or Gore are president. So who knows? 
Oh, and also who knows where we stand as far as Newt Gingrich's rise and the right wing purification of the party. Like I said, this is not irrefutable, but it's quite reasonable to say that Ross Perot had an enormous influence on the world we live in today. I think it's irrefutable to say that of all the people who've died in 2019 so far, Perot had the biggest impact, and I'm even counting Karl Lagerfeld and Carol Channing. Ross Perot, when we think about him, he became one of those character... Ross Perot, when we think about him, became one of those characters who in the popular imagination was indistinguishable from his impersonator. Here's actual Perot. We had one news announcer criticize the pointer that I used before. So since we're dealing with voodoo economics, a great young lady from Louisiana sent me this voodoo stick, and I will use it as my pointer tonight. And certainly it's appropriate because, as you and I know, we are in deep voodoo. Here is Dana Carvey as Air Sats Perot. No, no, see, now this is not about me, see? I'm trying to find a candidate for my new reform party. Why are you making this about me, Larry? All right, all right. My point is not that Ross Perot is a serious man who's been unfairly maligned for his ridiculous aspects. No, he had many ridiculous aspects. He said ridiculous things in a ridiculous way. He had ridiculous beliefs. But he also made some points that are now part of the familiar prosecutor's brief against capitalism itself. This is from one of his long primetime network TV buys, where he lectured viewers about economic issues. In the middle of all this, what's happening to our corporate executive salaries compared to those of our industrial competitors who are beating us in head-to-head competition? Here's the ratio between worker compensation and executive compensation in Japan. Here's the ratio in Europe, and here is the ratio in the United States. And he didn't use the phrase income inequality, but that's what his charts were saying. And they were saying it more than 25 years ago. Now let's look at the net effect on all of us. From 77 to 92, the poorest got poorer, the second poorest fifth, this is 20% of the population, still lost money. The middle fifth, the three fifths up, still lost money. When you get to the four fifths, it's break even. The richest fifth is the only place it went up. Now go to the top 5% and the top 1%. Top 5% improved their incomes by 60%. The top 1% by 138%. I'm not saying Ross Perot had some good ideas and should have been taken more seriously. It's hard to do that when mixed in there with a couple of facts was the claim that there was an assassination plot against him over his NAFTA stance. He said that. Also, he assured Americans that he had talked to the manufacturer who was constructing 40,000 coffins for the American troops who were sure to be killed in the Gulf War. The first Gulf War claimed 292 coalition forces as killed in action. But Ross Perot tapped into worry. He pinpointed the legitimate causes of economic anxiety, and he broke through. He broke through in ways that many a billionaire of the present would surely envy. On the road to 2020 this morning, the crowded Democratic field is getting a new candidate. Billionaire Tom Steyer announced his bid in a campaign video. Tom Steyer, billionaire. Howard Schultz, billionaire. Both those guys would love the attention that Ross Perot got way back when, but that will not be happening. Why? Well, the media has changed. But also, Perot had this twisted, impish charisma that was, in fact, captivating. I will go as far as to say that while his two presidential runs were probably not to the civic good, his ongoing presence as an unignorable gadfly 
served a public purpose. In 1993, when the Clinton White House and most Democrats were trying to get NAFTA passed, Vice President Al Gore went on the Larry King show and for an hour and a half debated Ross Perot, if debated was the right word. See, again, he throws up propaganda. He throws up gorilla dust. It makes no sense. Perot brought his moxie and his obstreperousness and most importantly, his charts and his visuals along. This one was a picture of a Mexican laborer swinging a hammer, which Perot described to Larry King and CNN viewers this way. Here is a good, decent man working his heart out making his cardboard shack, and the cardboard came from boxes that were used to ship the goods Can down Can I there. say something about this? This, picture. I didn't interrupt you. The term side-eye was not invented then, but should have been. Gore, who, it must be said, made the more cogent arguments during the evening, was playing on Perot's turf. That's why he brought along visuals. He wasn't satisfied just to evoke the phrase, the Smoot-Hawley tariffs. No, the vice president brought photos of the guys. This is a picture of Mr. Smoot and Mr. Holly. They look like pretty good fellas. They sounded reasonable at the time. A lot of people believed them. The Congress passed the Smoot-Hawley protection bill. He wants to raise tariffs on Mexico. They raised tariffs and it was one of the principal causes, many economists say the principal cause, of the Great Depression in this country and around the world. Now I framed this so you can put it on your wall if you, you want you. to. Thank you. Thank you. Would raising tariffs produce another We're talking to totally different, unrelated situations. Ross Perot parried back Gore's claims with a mix of misdirection and an appeal to pure cynicism. He at times was calling signals from the forerunner of the death of expertise playbook that has become so popular today. You don't trust any government forecast? I'm saying they basically come out with phony numbers. He's talking about these exports. You're saying that our forecasts on, hold it, the forecasts on NAFTA are phony. Yes. Now, it's also true that Al Gore, during this debate, made assertions that were wrong, that we know today are wrong, accompanied by bar graphs, said this. In 1987, before Mexico started lowering its taxes at the border, its tariffs, we had a $5.7 billion trade deficit with Mexico. After five years, our, the goods we make and sell into Mexico, the volume has been growing twice as fast as the goods they make and sell in the United States. So last year, we had a $5.4 billion trade surplus. Now, if that tr trend continued for another two years, and NAFTA will by removing those barriers, greatly accelerate it, we will have a larger trade surplus with Mexico than with any country in the entire world. Yeah, well, it turns out that right now the U.S. goods and services trade deficit deficit with Mexico is $72 billion. Gore also spoke of all the jobs that NAFTA would create. There have been 23 studies of the impact of NAFTA on jobs in the United States, 22 of them have shown that it will cause an increase in jobs in the United States. In fact, the Center for Economic and Policy Research cites NAFTA as having cost the U.S. 600,000 jobs over two decades, though some of the jobs would have been lost anyway. Perot didn't have a crystal ball either, but he did have a bit of common sense. He did have a lot of nonsense, and he did have a stage persona that easily overwhelmed the vice president. Give me your whole mind. Yeah, I'm, I'm listening. Okay. I haven't heard the answer, but go ahead. That's because you haven't quit talking. Well, I'm, I'm listening. How do you stop it without NAFTA? Okay. He 
Are you going to listen? Work on it. What's interesting is that Gore was deemed to have won the debate in polls afterwards, and also that NAFTA passed. But the media gatekeepers of the time were underwhelmed by the performance, the New York Times noting, The debate, broadcast on the CNN program Larry King Live, broke no new ground on the merits and demerits of the trade pact, devolving instead into bickering and recriminations. The LA Times picked mostly on the suspended one, saying Larry King was, quote, absolutely the wrong person to moderate a loosely formatted, predictably volatile debate, whether the topic is free trade or Freemasons. He's just too passive. But I, 26 years after the fact... Watching it today, I thought it to be astounding TV and much, much better than most of the fodder served up by social media today. There are good shows on basic cable. I like me a good CNN town hall too. But let's call these two guys thought leaders on opposite sides of the issue. They were holding the nation's attention. They used substance. It was mostly substance. I mean, it was substance and some pictures of Smoot and Hawley. But it was, when you think about it, an astounding thing. Only Ross Perot could have commanded that stage. Ross Perot was, in fact, a giant of late 20th century communication. Quickly, if you believe that, I got a lot of stuff in the attic I can sell you. Okay. Ross Perot was a pivotal figure of the last 30 years. He was in part unique and in part a harbinger who presaged certain charismatic, ignorant, defiant billionaire trends that we are living with today. And that's it for today's show. Let me tell you about the Slate Show What Next every morning in your feed, 6 a.m. Today, they're talking to Vicki Ward, who wrote about Jeffrey Epstein for Vanity Fair in 2003. The journalist talks about what parts of her story back then were spiked and why. Now, here's the deal. Pierre Bien-Aimé and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. Now, let me tell you something. A billy goat's not a coyote, and an organization's not a chart. You catch my drift? Life's more like a cobweb than an organization chart. But in this organization, T.J. Raphael, the senior producer of Slate Podcast. You see, now the just good show, but I can't listen unless I taste it, touch it, lick it, eat it, write a three-star Yelp review about it. Search out a vegan version of it, regurgitate it, dye it with food coloring, and use it to help me make the Blue Man Group. That's just me. I wouldn't scratch a bullfrog on its belly, and you shouldn't either. So where was I? Ah, yes. The gist. And thanks for listening. Got my own plane, don't need Air Force One. <laughs> <laughs>